You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 389 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. Just east of Beaumont, Texas, the Sabine River runs as the dividing line between the Lone Star State and Louisiana. The river flows into Sabine Lake, and where its waters empty into the Gulf of Mexico is known as Sabine Pass. On September 8, 1863, the gunners of Company F, 1st Texas Heavy Artillery, known as the Davis Guards in honor of the Confederate president, aimed their assortment of a half-dozen cannons at a handful of Yankee warships steaming up the pass toward the earthworks of Fort Griffin. The fort, with its complement of two 24-pounders and four 32-pounders, guarded Sabine Pass. Major General Nathaniel Banks had dispatched a small federal armada under the command of Major General William Franklin to storm the pass and capture the fort as the first step in the Union occupation of Texas. On that day in September 1863, the four Yankee gunboats steaming up the pass toward Fort Griffin mounted 18 guns, while the two dozen or so transports behind them carried about 5,000 federal soldiers. Inside the fort, outnumbered more than 100 to 1, were fewer than 50 Confederates. The lopsided battle that followed would be one of the Civil War's most remarkable engagements. It would be compared to the epic stand of the Greeks at Thermopylae and would be labeled a, quote, miracle and, quote, the most extraordinary feat of the war. The miraculous Confederate triumph at Sabine Pass was a victory that certainly didn't appear likely in the summer of 1863. July had seen the surrender of the rebel bastions of Vicksburg and Port Hudson along the Mississippi River, as well as the the, the defeat of Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. And then in Tennessee, a federal army led by William Rosecrans had outmaneuvered Braxton Bragg's rebel forces and forced Bragg to fall all the way back to the gates of Chattanooga. 
Ulysses S. Grant wanted the victorious Union forces in the West to maintain their momentum by quickly launching a campaign against the key rebel port of Mobile, Alabama, along the Gulf Coast. Grant believed, correctly, that taking Mobile, with its important shipping and rail connections, would deal a serious blow to the Confederate war effort. Grant's most trusted lieutenant, William Tecumseh Sherman, agreed the capture of Mobile was the best next move for the Federals, as did Rear Admiral David Farragut, whose Gulf Squadron would necessarily play an integral role in any joint Army-Navy operation against Mobile. The idea was also discussed with Major General Nathaniel Banks, who, from his headquarters in New Orleans, was commander of the Department of the Gulf, and Banks was also on board with the plan. However, in the end, with regard to a plan to capture Mobile in 1863, the Federal Army and Naval commanders in the field would be overruled by officials in Washington. And so, rather than striking against Mobile to the east along the Gulf Coast, the Lincoln administration would instead direct banks in New Orleans to turn his attention west and occupy at least a portion of Texas. Ulysses S. Grant was bitterly disappointed by Washington's decision to focus on Texas rather than Mobile. Occupying Texas wasn't originally at the top of the U.S. Army's list of objectives for the simple reason that, militarily, the Lone Star State was a strategic backwater. However, two considerations led the Lincoln administration to prioritize Texas over Mobile. One reason that Abraham Lincoln felt compelled to occupy at least a part of Texas was purely commercial. You see, since very early in the war, the governors of the New England states had been lobbying the Lincoln administration to seize and secure an area on the Texas Gulf Coast from which cotton could be shipped north to provide the raw material that New England textile mills needed to operate. Republican Governor John Andrew of Massachusetts had written Washington as early as November 1861 to urge that the federal military occupy the coast of Texas. Andrew stressed the critical importance of making, quote, a way out for cotton, end quote, and said the importance of that objective had, quote, been pressed upon my notice by some of our most practical, experienced, and influential businessmen. Those influential businessmen suffered even more financial damage as the cotton shortage in New England continued to worsen throughout 1862. As business conditions worsened for the owners of textile mills, their lobbying efforts increased, aimed at pressuring the Lincoln administration to find a way to solve the problem. By late October 1862, even the New York Times had signed on to the effort, urging in a series of editorials that Texas be occupied as a means of obtaining a source of cotton. In the fall of 1862, with the U.S. Navy's capture of Galveston, the pressure on the Lincoln administration to do something in Texas let up. But with the dramatic Confederate recapture of that port at the beginning of 1863, the influential businessmen in New England once again resumed their relentless pressure to gain a secure foothold in the Lone Star State. 
In July 1863, with the surrenders of Vicksburg and Port Hudson and the opening of the Mississippi River, Abraham Lincoln believed that Federal Army and Navy forces were finally free to divert some of their resources to occupying Texas. However, despite what we said up until this point, the Lincoln administration's interest in the Lone Star State wasn't primarily business-related. Another reason, almost certainly the main reason, that officials in Washington were so anxious to plant the U.S. flag in Texas in late 1863 was fear that another country, namely France, might be attempting to beat them to it. Despite the Army and Navy's strong preference for a movement east from New Orleans against Mobile, Alabama, Abraham Lincoln directed those federal forces to instead head west to occupy at least a portion of Texas. It wasn't that Lincoln thought that Texas was a more important military target than Mobile. No, the president's decision to launch an operation against the Lone Star State had almost nothing to do with military considerations. Instead, Lincoln became convinced that planting the U.S. flag there was critically important to send a strong signal to France to not mess with Texas. You may be wondering why France would be messing with Texas in the middle of the American Civil War. Well, that's a tale in and of itself, but it all started when France's Emperor Napoleon III decided to intervene in Mexico. The chaotic political landscape in Mexico provided him with the opportunity, and the Mexican government's refusal to pay its foreign debts provided him with an excuse, and so Napoleon sent a large army to Mexico in January 1862. Following more than a year of fighting, including an embarrassing loss to Mexican troops at the Battle of Puebla on May 5, 1862, the French captured Mexico City on June 7, 1863, overthrowing the legitimate Mexican government led by President Benito Juarez. That Napoleon was dreaming of a Latin American empire was soon confirmed when he arranged for Archduke Ferdinand Maximilian, the second son of Archduke Franz Karl of Austria, to accept the throne of the newly established Mexican monarchy. Maximilian, now known as Emperor Maximilian I, arrived in Mexico on May 28, 1864, to claim the throne of the new French puppet state. In Washington, the French invasion of Mexico outraged Abraham Lincoln and his Secretary of State, William Seward. The two men saw it as a clear violation of the Monroe Doctrine. By the time of the Civil War, the Monroe Doctrine was a foundational principle of U.S. foreign policy. In December 1823, in his annual message to Congress, President James Monroe had warned European powers that, from that point on, as far as North and South America were concerned, they could just forget about it, because that was the U.S.'s home turf, and the United States wouldn't tolerate further colonization by European powers, or their installation of puppet monarchs. 
Obviously, Napoleon III's very aggressive actions regarding Mexico blew in the face of the Monroe Doctrine, but the French ruler was betting that he could get away with it because the U.S. government was a bit distracted fighting a civil war. However, when the French consul in Galveston had then written a provocative letter, later published in northern newspapers, suggesting that Texas might be better off as a separate country, in essence acting as a buffer on Mexico's border, that idea served as a wake-up call to the Lincoln administration. And so, as a counterweight to French schemes regarding Texas, Lincoln and Seward wished to see a strong Union military presence established in the Lone Star State. In a letter on August 9, 1863, Lincoln apologized to Grant and explained his decision not to accept Grant's recommendation to attack Mobile. Quote, I see by a dispatch of yours that you incline quite strongly toward an expedition against Mobile. This would appear tempting to me also, were it not that, in view of recent events in Mexico, I am greatly impressed with the importance of reestablishing the national authority in Texas as soon as possible. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Under strong pressure from above to plant the stars and stripes in Texas, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck sent an order directing Nathaniel Banks to take action to occupy a portion of the Lone Star State. Banks' name is probably familiar to y'all. As y'all will recall, he was a political general who had served before the war as governor of Massachusetts and whose most notable achievements during the war up to this point had been getting kicked around the Shenandoah Valley by Stonewall Jackson. And then, after being transferred west, his recent capture of Port Hudson, downriver from Vicksburg. Banks had previously favored an attack on Mobile, but as a former politician, 
he had no trouble changing his opinions to suit the occasion, and so he didn't miss a beat in pivoting to planning a campaign in Texas. Halleck's orders left it up to Banks' discretion just where to strike, and said the Navy would cooperate with Banks' plans. In a separate piece of correspondence, Halleck let Banks know that the order to occupy some portion of Texas was, quote, of a diplomatic rather than of a military character, and resulted from some European complications, or more properly speaking, was intended to prevent such complications, end quote. Left to his own choice of a target, Banks decided to start his invasion of Texas at Sabine Pass. He and his staff had looked at maps of the Lone Star State and evaluated all the potential invasion points. He first rejected most of the spots along the lower Texas coast as possible landing sites, since none had good railroad connections leading to the rest of the state. Another consideration was that if Banks launched his invasion near the southern end of the Texas coast, it would leave a potentially large Confederate force between the Federal invaders and their primary base of operations and supply to the east in Louisiana. From a strategic standpoint, it was apparent that the real target of any invasion force sent to Texas needed to be Galveston and its smaller neighbor to the northwest, Houston. Galveston had the best natural harbor along the Texas coast and had become the primary port through which cotton was exported before the war. Supporting the trade through Galveston, Houston was the central hub of the most extensive system of railroads in the state. Banks reasoned that if the Federals could get control of the vital transportation network in this area, they would, for all intents and purposes, control Texas. Just as Vicksburg had been the key to controlling the Mississippi, Galveston and Houston were the keys to control of Texas. The problem was that in 1863, these keys were firmly in the enemy's pocket. But that hadn't always been the case. In October 1862, the Confederates had essentially abandoned Galveston to the U.S. Navy without a fight. But just before dawn on January 1st, 1863, a combined rebel land and sea force under the command of John Bankhead Magruder had recaptured Galveston from the Yankees. Which we talked about in episodes 251 and 252. Exactly. We're your full service Civil War podcast. <laughs> well, anyway, since the Confederates had recaptured Galveston, Magruder had had an impressive array of defensive fortifications erected to protect the island city. Banks knew about those improved defenses, and so he considered Galveston too tough a nut to crack head on. Rather than trying to capture Galveston first and then using the island as a base of operations to proceed against Houston, Banks planned to take Houston first and then have a go at Galveston from the rear. The problem with this plan was that it required a long approach over hostile territory to reach Houston. It was at this point that Sabine Pass entered Banks' thinking. 
As shown on a map that Banks sent to Washington explaining his invasion plan, the overland approach to Houston would be much simplified if the expedition could make use of the railroad line that stretched west from the Louisiana border to Houston. And the most convenient landing point close to the eastern terminus of that railroad was just below Sabine City, the small town near the entrance to Sabine Pass. Banks believed that a federal force would face no serious resistance at Sabine Pass, making it the perfect place to begin his Texas campaign. Nathaniel Banks can be forgiven for thinking a federal force wouldn't have a problem capturing Sabine Pass because, well, he knew a federal force had already done it once before. Right. You see, a year earlier, in September 1862, as part of the larger effort to capture Galveston, a federal force had captured the crude Confederate fort guarding Sabine Pass with little effort. Those Yankees destroyed the fort, took the surrender of Sabine City, and destroyed a nearby railroad bridge. However, that force was too small to occupy the area, so after a day or two, they withdrew and joined the larger effort to take Galveston. The knowledge of the easy success of that September 1862 operation against Sabine Pass certainly affected Nathaniel Banks' decision a year later to make that spot the starting point for his invasion of Texas. What Banks didn't realize, though, was that that previous success had been misleading and a bit of a fluke. That's because the rudimentary fort the attackers had captured was garrisoned with only 30 soldiers, backed up by a force of only 30 or so nearby cavalrymen. In addition, the defenders had orders to spike their guns and skedaddle if the Yankees actually showed up in force and wanted the place, which is exactly what they did when the Yankees showed up in force and wanted the place. But a year later, the situation had changed, unbeknownst to the Federals. That's because the easy success of that first attack convinced the Confederates the need to strengthen the defenses at Sabine Pass. So, following the recapture of Galveston, Magruder planned stronger defenses at the pass. That meant the federal effort to recapture the place in September 1863 would have dramatically different results. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Sabine Pass, The Confederacy's Thermopylae, by Edward T. Cotham, Jr. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information about becoming a member and supporting the podcast over on Patreon. Just like Glenn M., Josh, Moshi K., Alan L., and John W., Zivia, Travis G., Alfio P., Mike M., and Erland M., Robert H., Christopher N., and Kurt R. 
And thanks to Josh H. and Jim M. for their donations. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll be back with part two of the Battle of Sabine Pass. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.